as I was preparing uh, this message for this week, I was thinking back to some of the proverbial type statements uh, that I heard growing up that relate to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, statements like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. How many of you found, have found that to be true? Yeah, not many. I can also remember uh, my mother many, many times having a son who was uh, very quick-tempered and quick-tongued. Uh, my mother many times would say to me, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. You've heard that before as well. And there is more truth to that one than the first statement that we made. And yet, I want to show us today in God's Word that that really isn't an option for us as believers. There's something more God is calling us to in this passage of Scripture. And as we're working through our church covenant, we're now on the third line of our church covenant. The first line says, I will protect the unity of my church. And then the next three lines talk about how do we protect the unity of our church. Last week we talked about by acting in love toward one another. We talked about what is biblical love and how do we practice it primarily in the context of the church. And then today we're seeing the second way in which we maintain the unity of our church. The first one was voiced positively by acting in love toward one another. Today's is voiced negatively by refusing to gossip. And so we're going to talk about the subject of gossip today. But I, but I really want to put this in a little bit of a broader context. We're not going to talk just about uh, the sin of gossip. We're going to talk about our use of the tongue in the context of the church and what God has called us to do with our tongues, with that powerful muscle in our mouths in the context of the body of Christ. And so uh, today's message is called Refusing to Gossip, but we're going to talk about broader uses of the tongue, a gossip being one of those. And so I've tried to give a definition each week. We talked about a definition of unity in week one. We talked about a definition, a biblical definition of love in week two. Today I want to give you what I think is a wonderful and simple biblical definition of gossip. And this is from a pastor named Matt Mitchell. And he wrote a book called Resisting Gossip, which I would highly recommend to you if you're looking for something on this subject. But he said this, sinful gossip is bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart so there's there's three elements to what he is getting at and what i think the bible is directing us to when it talks about this issue of gossip it's bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart now what i love about this definition and what we're going to talk about throughout the morning today is how he is connecting the use of our tongue with our heart you know, Jesus said in Matthew 12, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And if you want to see what's really going on in someone's heart, watch the way they use words. It's a great indicator of what's really going on in our hearts. And so I, I, we're going to use this definition and, and, and be uh, using that as a jumping off point this morning as we look at these last verses in Ephesians chapter 4. And so first point on your outline, we want to say this, that we want to remind ourselves, as Paul reminds us and as the gospel reminds us, that, that what we believe will determine how we live. This is a basic of Christianity, 
that what we believe determines how we live. Now, this is not just true for Christians. This is actually true for all people, even atheists, even professing atheists. It's true for them. What they believe is determining how they are living. That's the way God has created us, whether we believe him or not. But especially for us as Christians, we need to to recognize this is a foundational truth. And, And that's why in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the first three chapters to lay out what we believe as the people of God. Primarily what we believe about the gospel, the things that Andy was sharing with us just a few moments ago, how we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've been saved by the grace of God, not through our works. We've been brought into fellowship with God through Christ. We've been given an inheritance, an eternal inheritance that's unperishing and unfading and full of glory. He lays out in those first three chapters what we believe. And then at the beginning of chapter four, he says, therefore, here's how you're to live. Because what you believe will determine how you live. And so it would be easy this morning for us to jump into verse 25 and and me just to tell you what you ought to be doing with your tongue. But but here's what I found about myself, and this may be true for you. Ought to's don't often get me very far. Somebody just telling me what I ought to do. That starts to incite something in that old man, that sinful nature that still resides in me. And and I find myself, they ought to's. I know that I ought to eat better. I know that I ought to exercise more. I know that I ought to and fill in the blank, whatever that is. But I know that ought to's don't always get me very far. I'm the kind of person, and you may be similar in that, I want to know the why to. And that's what really Paul is doing here as he lays out what we ought to be doing primarily with our our tongues and the use of our words in this passage. He grounds it in what we believe that that, that our belief is going to determine the way in which we live and in, in particular in this use of our words. And so there are five basic truth statements that are being made in this passage that he weaves into these commands that he's giving to us. And so let me just walk you through them real quickly. We're not going to spend a long time here, but understand this is the basis for what he's going to tell us about how we use our words. First of all, we believe that the God of the Bible created all people in his image. If you look at verse 24, that's the that's the basic idea behind verse 24. I know Andy didn't read that particular verse. I didn't ask him to, but it but it says that we are putting on the new self. There's a new creation in Christ. We're putting on the new self that's created after the likeness or the image of God made in true righteousness and holiness. Now, we we remind ourselves that from the very beginning, mankind was made in the image of God to reflect the character, the, the goodness, the truth, the righteousness of God in all of creation. Now, now we messed that up when we chose to sin against God, but it's still true that we're made in the image of God, even if that image has been ruptured by sin. And so what God is doing in, in this new creation of those who have trusted in Christ, what God is doing is that he is re creating us in his image now this will change 
the way we speak to others, if we remind ourselves that every time that I'm speaking with another human being, I'm speaking with someone who is created in the image of God. I mean, begin to think about that. If you begin to apply that to the way that you use words, it'll change the way that you talk to others. If you begin to look at every person as someone created in the image of God, meant to display the glory of God. That's a huge truth that Paul uses to undergird these commands he's going to show to us this morning. The second truth is that the church is the redeemed, united family of God. Now, we're walking deeply in that in these days as we're walking through our church covenant here on Sunday mornings. But, but notice what he does there in verse 25. In verse 24, he grounds it in the person and character and work of God. And then he jumps directly in verse 25 as he begins to lay out these commands and grounds it in who the church is when he says to them, we are members one of another. He's talking to the church here. He's saying we are members one of another. We're members of the body of Christ. And so just like our understanding of being created in the image of God is going to change the way that we use words. So our understanding that we are members one of another in the body of Christ will change the way that we speak to one another. The church is the redeemed, united family of God. The third truth that he shows us here that undergirds and grounds these commands is that the devil is a lying, thieving, murdering destroyer. And we could say many other things, but that gets to the heart of the nature of the one who seeks the destruction of the church and often uses our tongues to cause division and destruction in the church. And so in verse 27 there, he says, let's not give the devil any opportunity. I think the New International Version says, let's give him no foothold. Let's not give him any opportunity to do what he's going to do as he acts out of his nature. We're going to see that later in the scriptures in John 8 here in a little bit. But understand, the devil does what he does as he acts out of his nature as a liar, a deceiver, and a destroyer. And so, let's not give him any opportunity in the way that we speak to one another. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The fourth truth that undergirds these commands is that the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers all believers. We have the same Spirit of God dwelling in us and empowering us to live this new life that Paul is laying out for us in these chapters. And again, this will change the way that we interact with one another, reminding ourselves that we're made in the image of God, reminding ourselves that we're members one of another, reminding ourselves that we have an adversary that's looking to devour us, reminding ourselves that we're indwelt with the same Holy Spirit. This will change the way that we speak to one another. And then finally, in verse 32 the, the, the really the core of what Paul's trying to get us to is this final statement that the cross of Christ has made a way for our forgiveness. 
That's where he closes out this powerful chapter by reminding us that God himself purchased our forgiveness through the blood of his son poured out at the cross. God made a way for us to be forgiven. Therefore, we can now forgive one another. This changes the way that we interact with each other and particularly as we're going to see the way that we use words. And so prior to getting into these commands, I wanted to remind us this morning, it's because we believe these things that we then will act in these ways. So let's not get the cart before the horse. Let's get things in proper order. And Pastor John Stott said so well, he said it's because we have already put off our old nature in that decisive act of repentance called conversion that we can logically be commanded to put away all these practices which belong to that old rejected life. So there's a wrestling there. There's a wrestling between the old man and the new between the sinful nature and that which is being renewed in the image of God, there's a wrestling there, but we understand the victory has already been won. There's nothing we need to add to what the cross of Christ has already accomplished for us, what the Holy Spirit has already done in us. We are simply now empowered to walk in the kinds of things that Paul is going to lay out for us in terms of commands this morning. And so let's consider our words. Let's consider the way that we use our tongues this morning and let's heed the scriptures and the church will be all the better for it. So two simple thoughts this morning. The first of these is that Paul would command us and the Holy Spirit would urge us to put off words that give grief. Now, I'm drawing that from his statement about the Holy Spirit in verse 30, where he urges us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, first of all, that statement ought to remind us that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. If he can be grieved, that means that he is personal. If he can be affected by our sin, that means that he is personal. He dwells within us. And so what does it look like for us to use words in a way that grieve the Holy Spirit? And by the way, let's say this. If we're using our words in a way that grieve the Holy Spirit, it ought to be grieving us. As the Spirit within us is grieved, we ought to be grieved as well. And this is a marker for us. If we're not grieved by these things, then we ought to be asking, is the Holy Spirit really residing in us? a really important question let's not take these things for granted so what kind of words do we need to to put off do we need to shed do we need to put away in our lives first of all those that are gossip ridden those that are gossip ridden and let me just say as boldly as i can this morning when we think about gossip this is one of those sins we tend to minimize or put on the lower end of the list of of sins and yet we see the bible elevating this to the top of the list in many many places as i'll show you in just a moment i want to say this to us gossip is a cancer to the body of christ 
For those of you who have been through cancer and have gone through that battle, I want you to understand this morning that gossip is a cancer to the body of Christ. And like cancer, as it spreads through the body, it does more and more destruction and brings more and more death to the body. We need to see this. And we need to see, just as we would desire not to see cancer spread in our body, we've rejoiced in recent days over some who have been given good reports about cancer not having spread in their bodies. We've rejoiced over that. We rejoice that, that, that it has not spread. That's the way we ought to view gossip. We ought to so desire gossip not to spread among us because we see it as the cancer that it is, as the destructive agent that it is. And church, let me just be very honest this morning and say that in my, in my 15 years with you, I have watched as gossip, the cancer of gossip has infected and brought destruction to this body over and over and over again. And members have been severed from this body because of this sin. It's serious. And we need to take it as such. Let's look at some scriptures. Proverbs 26. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning, so just try to hang on as much as you can. I've listed them on your outline, so you don't have to go to all of these places now, but it would probably be good to review these later this week. Proverbs 26 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, that means a gossip, by the way. Other translations refer to it as a gossip. But where there is no whisperer, where there is no gossip, quarreling ceases. And then two verses later, the words of a whisper or the words of a gossip, they're like delicious morsels. That sounds good, right? They're like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Matt Mitchell, in his book about gossip, he used this illustration. I thought this was so powerful. He said, it's like if, if, uh, if your wife was to set out on the table a, a, a bowl of wonderful, fresh potato chips. He said, in my house, what happens there is everybody comes around and, and before long, that bowl is empty. He said, but if that's all I'm feasting on is potato chips, before long, I'm going to be sick, especially if I eat the whole bag. And he said, that's what gossip is like. It, it tastes good in the beginning, but the more that you take it in, the more it starts to turn your stomach and the more sickened you become. And he's saying, that's what it's like for us. At first, we hear a little gossip, a little bad news about someone, a, a little juicy tidbit. We take that in and it seems good in the moment, but we don't recognize how often that begins to turn towards sickness and death, particularly in the body of Christ. Romans 1 lists gossip among the sins that characterize those that live in rebellion against God. Romans 1.29, they were, it says they were filled, I don't know what just happened there, let me go back. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God. So if we think gossip is a small deal, Paul lists it here in relation to haters of God. That's a big deal, right? 
insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents. And he goes on with that list. He lists gossip here, not as a small deal, as a big deal. That we would see the gravity of this cancer that so often infects the body of Christ and causes untold damage and uh, and sidelines so many people. We'll talk about the solution to it here, here in a moment. Let's talk about some other ways that we use words, though, that bring grief, that grieve the Holy Spirit and ought to grieve us. We can talk about words that are resentful. Going to the end of the passage, verse 32, he's calling us to forgiveness, but he's also calling us away from what he talks about in verse 31, bitterness and malice. And and he's calling us away from a resentful attitude that, that holds on to the sins of others in order to use them as weapons against them. Proverbs 17, 9 encourages us, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. See, that's what happens when our lives are characterized by gossip and resentment. It separates relationships. That's what God is concerned about. First Corinthians 13, we know it well. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is the kind of love that we've been called to as we looked at last week. So putting aside resentment. Thirdly, the third, third type of words that, that bring grief to the Holy Spirit and should grieve us are words that are injurious. Words that bring injury. And again, I know we've heard said so many times, sticks and stones, right? Words will never hurt me. And yet, all of us in this room could likely give testimony of a time when words have been like Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one whose words are, or whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. All of us in this room could give testimony of times when someone's words have been like sword thrusts that pierced us to the very heart. They were painful. They've, and they stick with you. You, have the, you bear the scars of words that were spoken in, in an effort to injure you. And we don't want to hold on to that. That leads us back to the resentfulness. But we need to recognize that for what it is and recognize the, word, the damage that words can do. James reminds us the tongue is like a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. This is a fire out of control, by the way, as he's picturing it here. And it's set on fire by hell itself. It's a serious accusation. He goes on to say, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So sticks and stones, we need to toss that one out the door. No, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It is a sword that pierces and cuts and leaves scars. We need to be careful with the way that we use our words. Fourth, this morning, as we think about the kinds of words that we want to put out, put off, put out of our lives, words that are enraged, that are captivated by anger. Now, we're going to look at here in just a moment. There's two types of anger the Bible talks about. There's a righteous anger and there's a sinful anger. 
So not all anger is being uh, eliminated here. There are actually things that we as believers should get angry about. In fact, the Bible even commands us to anger in various contexts. But the problem is our sinful nature loves to grab hold of anger and take it into the realm of sin. And we'll talk about how that happens in just a moment. Proverbs 29, 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife. Again, it's dividing relationships. A man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. So anger can be a springboard to sin if left unchecked. Again, it's a fire out of control, burning and causing destruction. James 1.20 reminds us the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, again, I want to show you in just a few minutes, there are times in which we must be angry. There are times in which God is angry. Even the Bible uses the word wrathful. But we need to be able to discern the difference between righteous anger and sinful anger. I hope this will be helpful in doing so. And finally, the last category of words that that bring grief in our relationships It's words that are just simply fake. These may be words that are nice. These may be words that sound kind. But they're just simply false. And so from the very beginning of this passage this morning, Paul says to us, having put away falsehood, the picture is that was done living the false, the life of falsehood, the life of the lie, as Romans one talks about it, that was put away when you trusted in Jesus Christ, when God called you to himself through faith, that was putting away falsehood and the lie that is characterized by the devil and those who are following after him he says then let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor let each of you speak the truth for we are members one of another proverbs twelve seventeen. whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence but a false witness utters deceit and then again, John eight forty four, as he's speaking to those who are living opposed to the things of God, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. By the way, understand this morning, you speak out of your own character this is by god's design he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies so once again this morning please understand the way that we use words is an indication of who our father is the way that we use words either indicates that our father is the lord god almighty or that we are children of the devil seeking the destruction of others. So serious things. Let's talk about the positive side of this. We've talked about words that bring grief. Let's talk about as we finish out this morning. Let's talk about the kinds of words that bring grace. 
We need to put on as the garment of our lives. We need to put on words that bring grace. And I'm drawing this out of his encouragement to us there in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. God has given you your tongue as an instrument of grace. That's not just true for this preacher or for our worship leader or for our Sunday school teachers. God has given us the ability to speak to one another that we might shed grace abroad into the lives of others. That is powerful that we have the ability to be instruments of grace in this particular way. And what I want you to see here is as we walk back through these verses verses and see the positive commands, not just the things to stay away from, but the things to run toward. As we as we see these commands, what I want you to see is this. What Paul is doing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here is he's showing us what I would call grace notes. Here's what I mean by that. For those of you that, that, that have uh, some, some musical ability, or even if you don't have some musical ability, this morning as we were singing, I'm trying to sing a little bit of harmony with Grant. I don't have Grant's range, so I have to sing below Grant. So if we were kind of doing the do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do and, and, and measuring our range, I can maybe get to about right here. And then if Grant takes it from there, he can start there and Grant can go up to this place. He can go farther than I can go in his range. But Grant's got nothing on Mariah Carey. I mean, he's great and all. But if we're talking about range here, he's got nothing on Mariah Carey. She can start at the top of Grant's range and go way higher than that. And and, and I want to use that as an illustration this morning as we walk through the last part of this message. I want you to see what God is calling us to is to sing grace notes to one another, to go to a range that's higher than our natural capacity. In our natural capacity, we we can only get to this basic level, but God is empowering us by the Holy Spirit to sing grace notes that go above and beyond. Let me show you what I'm talking about as we walk through these these next few uh, points. We put on words that give grace. First of all, we want to put on words that are genuine. So it's not enough. It's not enough baseline for us just to not lie to each other or to speak falsehoods to one another. We actually are commanded here to speak the truth to one another. You see how that's above and beyond? I mean, for the most part of the world in which we live understands there's a problem with lying. Now, that seems to be seen less and less in our day. That seems to be seen less and less that that's actually an issue but it is, it still, I think our world understands to a, a basic level that lying to each other is going to cause a breakdown in relationships and a breakdown in society that, that we're not going to be able to sustain. So there's a, still a problem with lying. But the Bible's not saying, don't, just don't lie to each other. The Bible's saying, no, go to the grace note. Go farther, and you actually are commanded by God here to speak truth to one another. To speak the truth of God's word to one another, even to teach one another, as Paul writes in another place. Proverbs 12, truthful lips endure forever. There is a 
forever nature and eternality to the kinds of words that God is calling us to speak to one another. But a lying tongue is but for a moment. John 16, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. By the way, that's what we're called to. God has never called you to speak on your own authority. I am not standing before you this morning seeking to speak on my own authority. When you start hearing someone speaking on their own authority, understand very clearly they would not even have that authority if it were not for God. The only authority I have to bring the word of God to you this morning is the authority that God has given to his word and to his church. And so we speak. Secondly, not just words that are genuine, but words that are righteous. Again, see the difference that Paul is laying out between sinful anger and righteous anger. He actually commands us there. He actually commands us in verse 26. Notice the first two words. Be angry. That's a command, folks. There are things that we ought to be angry about in the current moment. We ought to be angry at the continuing sin of abortion in our country. You see, the alternative for us is to be apathetic. That's sinful. We ought to be angry at some of the abuses of power that are happening in our world today. We ought ought to be angry... We ought to be angry that this last week we saw a Canadian pastor be put in jail. His name is James Coates. He was put in jail because their church was continuing to meet and not following COVID guidelines that would restrict them in such a way they couldn't even meet. In in this particular region of Canada, the churches have been restricted to a 15% capacity. Let me translate that for us, folks. That would mean we would max out in this room at 60 people. We have more than 60 people here today. We would be, have been breaking that law this morning if we were in Edmonton, Canada. And he was imprisoned on Monday because he chose obedience to the word of God. And I want to say very clearly, I've heard this man preach this week. He has been utterly respectful. But he has also been utterly biblical. And we ought to be angered that these things are happening when the government's role is to guard our rights. We're watching the government infringe upon our rights in the supposed name of protecting people from an illness. I don't want to minimize the illness, but I also don't want to minimize the travesties that are happening. And and if you think Canada is very far away and very far beyond where we're at today, understand this is what's coming. We've already seen it in California. We ought to be angered by these things. We ought to be apathetic. There ought to be, when we see the effects of sin in the world around us, we ought to be angry. But notice what he says. Be angry and sin not. Now for many of us, your pastor included, this is a lifelong struggle. 
As a young man, my life was gripped by anger and sinful anger. It was not righteous indignation. It was sinful anger that gripped my life. And it took many years, the Holy Spirit working on me, the Word of God being implanted in my heart that I might not sin against God in this area. It was a lifelong struggle. And for many of us, we know what it's like when sinful anger has a stranglehold on our lives. Only the power of God can deliver you from that. I can testify to that in my own life. He's called us to a righteous anger. Proverbs 19. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Again, slow to anger is what we're being called to. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That verse changed my life as a young man. So I began to understand why it was so important for me to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Let this characterize our communication with one another. I'm going to have to fly through these last few, but let's, let's jump right into verse 28. He calls us to words that I would characterize by being altruistic. That, that word means selfless. That word means others-centered. And he does it in the context of talking about theft. Now, we're moving a little bit outside of the range of the tongue here for just a moment. But I want you to see the application of it to the tongue here in just a minute. He's talking about theft. and He says, let the thief no longer steal. And again, the world would say, amen. We steal for the most part. Now, again, we're beginning to wonder. You know, as we're, as we're moving down the track we've been on, we're beginning to wonder at what point are they commending thievery. But, but we, we still, at this point, basically, the, the culture says, yeah, we don't want people to steal. We don't want people to, to take what doesn't belong to them. And the Bible affirms that. But notice where the grace note goes. The, the Bible says, don't steal, but instead what? Work. And again, for the most part, our culture would say an amen to that. Though, again, we're beginning to wonder. It, it seems like there's a, a places where people are being encouraged, encouraged not to work. Uh, but anyway, we won't get on, off on that soapbox. But he says, don't steal, work. Now, here's the grace note. It's not just work so you can provide for your needs. It's work. Why? Look what he says. Work so that you may have something to share with those who are in need. You see the grace note? You see, our culture says, yeah, don't steal. Yeah, work hard, confirm those things. But the purpose for work is the grace note that the culture doesn't understand. The culture says, no, you don't work just so you can pay your bills and buy your toys. You work so that you can serve others. See, that's a game changer in relation to your finances. It's a game changer in the way we understand our material possessions. That that which God has entrusted to us is given as a gift that we might serve others. Other-centeredness in our working and, I would say, in our use of words. Considering how our words affect others is necessary. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, Proverbs 14.31 says. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Opportunities all around us every day to walk in obedience to what God's word is showing us here. 
Philippians 2, the attitude that should drive us comes straight from Christ. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, that's that other-centered mentality, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And begin to apply that to the way that you use words, the way that you use your tongue. It's life-changing. A couple more. We need to put on words that are compassionate. By compassionate, I mean words, using our words in such a way that we are willing to suffer for the good of others. When Jesus saw the crowds that were gathering to hear him teach, he looked on them with compassion. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he knew that he had come to be that good shepherd that would lead them in paths of righteousness, that would pay the penalty of their sin through his blood. This is what compassion looks like, that we're willing to enter into the sufferings of others. We're willing to do that. As James Coates said about the potential for him being put in jail this week, and he was on Monday, as Pastor James was talking about this, he he said very clearly, as we consider the good of those around us in our community, we need to understand we need to be ready and willing to suffer injustice for the sake of those around us. You see, oftentimes we draw the line there. Well, if it means I'm going to have to suffer for it, again, there's a grace note here. It's going beyond. It goes beyond here. This grace note goes beyond and leading us into a place where we're being called to something higher and greater. I'm thankful that Pastor Coates knew exactly what he was stepping into when he stepped into the pulpit last Sunday in disobedience to an unjust government mandate that restricted their worship. I'm so thankful that this brother was faithful to the Word of God as he laid out so powerfully Romans 13. By the way, if you want to hear a great message, go listen to James Coates, Romans 13, last Sunday on Valentine's Day. Hear this brother who on Monday was carried off to jail and still remains there today as far as I understand. This is what we've been called to, the willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ. Compassion. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Proverbs 21. Colossians 3, parallel to this passage, put on then as a garment, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Let me say this to us, church. I know you've heard it before. Let me say it again. Forgiveness is not optional for us. I don't get to choose whether or not I forgive those who harm me. If my Savior can look upon those who drove the nails into His hands and into His feet and He can say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, then I have no right as a child of God to cling to bitterness or unforgiveness in my heart. And in fact, in so doing, I am demonstrating not only that I don't trust God, but potentially that I don't know God. 
You say, Pastor, that sounds harsh. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm trying to be truthful this morning. I know that forgiveness is often a process. It often takes time for us to work through it. But if you lay, if you set your, your foot down and say, I cannot and will not forgive that person, the Bible would say to you, then how can you expect God to forgive you? You're refusing them the very grace that you would cry out for. Finally this morning, we must put on words that are encouraging. Literally infusing courage in others. As he says here in verse 29, building others up. At the end of the day, our words can be used for two primary purposes. We will either use words to tear others down. I was a master at this as a young man. Prodded myself on being able to use my words to tear others down that I might elevate my own opinion of myself. I wasn't seeing myself in light of the gospel in those days. And so I, I learned to use words to tear others down that I might elevate my own sense of self-esteem. What I really needed was esteem for Christ. But instead, he's calling us here to use words for building up. So it's not just, we can't just stay, say, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. No, the Bible says, no, you've been given this tongue as an instrument of grace to sing grace notes in the lives of others, to build them up, to build up the downtrodden through your words in service to God. God has given you your words. And so use them for His glory and for the good of others. These final verses. Proverbs 25, a beautiful picture. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a, cell, in a setting of silver. The right words at the right time can be life-changing. I want you to think about moments in your life when someone spoke something to you that you will never forget that was life-changing for you. I can think of a variety of instances of that, but I want to encourage you. Let's be those kinds of... The folks that speak the word fitly spoken. First Thessalonians 5. God has not destined us for wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep. We might live with him. Therefore. Because of this gospel truth. Therefore. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Just as you are doing. I praise God that we have some folks in this congregation that are used of God with great regularity to this kind of encouragement ministry. Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement to the early church. And I praise God that God has put in this church some Barnabas type folks who regularly use words to encourage others. I want to say to you, keep it up. In fact, let's see more of that. And those of us who may not be as bent in that direction by character or by our, our given nature, let's learn to do this by the power of God. Let's learn to use our words to build others up. And so let me leave you with some questions to consider this morning. First of all, what does your use of the tongue really say about the condition of your heart? There's a direct connect here, folks. What does your use of, of the tongue, of your, of your words, 
What does it reveal about the condition of your heart? This may be a call to repentance. It may be a call to thanksgiving. Praise be to God. He has changed that in my life in such a magnificent way. Second question, who do you need to speak the truth in love to today? Who do you need to forgive or to ask to forgive you? Say, Pastor, that's hard. You're getting into some meddling territory now. Yep, it's exactly where the Bible goes. Look at verse 32. We can't avoid it. As God in Christ forgave you. That's what he's calling us to. It's hard, but it's necessary. Who do you need to take the time today to encourage and build up with your words? I got to thinking about, we have had a number of our ladies in our church this last year have lost their husbands. The number of widows in our church has multiplied over this last year. And we've, saw, we've seen two more just in the last couple of weeks as Joe Basham went home to be with the Lord. And as we just saw this weekend, as Jim Rhodes passed away, there's this, this gravity, this weight of, of grief What has God called us to but to come alongside these ladies, these sisters in Christ? And and maybe it's not necessarily words, maybe it's presence, but there's a time for words. There's a time, some of you have walked this path, you're farther down the road in, in this path, and you're able to come alongside others, and you're able to share your experience, you're able to share even more powerfully God's Word and your experience of God's comfort and grace in the midst of grief. We need to begin to use words to do the work of God that he's called us to do. And finally, what do you need to repent of in your use of words, the use of your tongue? Where is the word calling you to repentance? And where is the word calling you to greater faith in this area? To be more bold in your use of your tongue for the glory of God and for the good of those God would bring into your path. Church, let's consider our words today. Ephesians 4.15 Rather, church, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head of the church into Christ. Let's use our words to this end today. Let's pray together. Father, you have shown us tremendous grace through words. You have spoken. You have given us your word for our instruction. We have heard your word today and we are not given the option just to hear and walk away unchanged. As James would say to us, let's not just be hearers of the word, but let's become doers of the word. So help us. To test our tongues today. Show us what's in our hearts. Lead us in paths of repentance and faith for your name's sake, for the good of your church. Lord, may, if there are patterns of inflicting grief in the lives of others and grieving the Holy Spirit because of the way that we're using words, Lord, would you lead us to repentance today? But may we not just stop at that. May we see that you're calling us to sing these grace notes in the lives of others. 
to use our words to encourage, to forgive, to instruct, to challenge, to comfort, to pray, to proclaim the gospel. Father, I pray that you might teach us what it will look like for us in this body to speak the truth in love that we might grow up into Christ. In Jesus' name.